Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the December 10, 2019 edition of Ask a Leader. Today is the day that the U.S. Congress, finding a pattern of misconduct, has filed two articles of impeachment against President Donald Trump. Our nation's huge teachable moment continues, whether or not the exercise is a pleasant one, witnessing yesterday's Judiciary Committee session. Now for today's show, Dr. Rhoda O, Professor of Epidemiology and Anatomy at Boston University's School of Public Health and faculty member of the now world-famous and enduring Framingham Heart Study, will talk about the heart-brain link in the aging process and the variability of this process in our brains. She'll also take up patient access to our private patient data and a whole new way of decentralizing this asset and making it our own. Then we'll have on Norma Aguilar from the local Mexican consulate in Santa Ana about educational and cultural offerings this season and beyond. It's a lovely time to chat about while many celebrate La Posada. We'll return after a short station break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. My guest, Dr. Rhoda O, Professor of Epidemiology and Anatomy at Boston University School of Public Health and faculty member, the now, as I said earlier, the world famous and enduring Framingham Heart Studies, going to be on my show. Dr. O had quite the scintillating delivery at this fall's UCI Mind Alzheimer's Research Conference. She introduced some fresh ideas about how we could consider aging over our entire lifespan, which we'll explore today. I had to bring her back to Orange County uh, with her special delivery. Her research interests focus on aging and dementia and include relating cardiovascular risk factors, brain MRI measures, and neuropathology to cognitive performance. She's also interested in merging research and technology as the path toward innovative science, a topic which we'll have her cover today. Dr. Rhoda O. completed her Bachelor's of Arts at Pomona College, her MBA at Boston University, and her PhD at UC Riverside. She comes to us today from Boston, Massachusetts. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Dr. Rhoda O. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate this opportunity to talk about, you know, the work that we're doing and hopefully interest others in it. Well, I thought you spoke to so many areas. It was so interesting at the conference. And when you said you'd be available later on this year, I thought this is going to be a really tremendous thing to offer listeners. I think there's really, there's so many places, Rhoda, that we could start. I guess I'd like to maybe jump off from the, the general part of the Framingham study, the cardiovascular longitudinal study that started with over 5,200 participants. It now involves three generations, that's three cohorts. Talk about 
What special opportunities, aspects intrigued you about the study pertaining to brain aging? Because it, it cha- it's changed over the years, and we'll talk about that in more detail. But what, where did you say, ah, this is something we can take to some very interesting places? Yeah, so let me just start out just for, uh, for those who might not know the complete history of the Framingham Heart Study. It actually started in 1948, and as you said, it started out with an original cohort of 5,209 participants. Um, and they were followed, actually. They came in for a health exam um, every two years for actually 64 years. And just to let you know, at the time when Framingham was conceived, we actually didn't know why people died of heart disease and stroke. In fact, um, you know, even the concept of cardiovascular risk factors did not exist. Framingham was the first study to actually define the concept of risk factors. They did that in a study um, in 1961, and that really sort of launched uh, the whole arena of preventive medicine that we take for granted today. And, but as a result of Framingham, within the first 20 years or so of the study, they actually were the first to start to define what are the factors that lead to increased risk of heart disease and stroke. So what I always like to ask people is, you know, how many people have to go in and get their blood pressure measured? And the reason you have to get that measured is because of Framingham, because they were the first ones to actually define the concept of high blood pressure, which hadn't been known before. So anyways, within Framingham, it turns out that when you start to study a cohort very carefully, you also start to document other diseases. So in 1976, um, what happened was Framingham decided to add a cognitive assessment component to their health exam. And that really set the stage for the cognitive aging dementia studies that I've been involved in. In 1971, I want to mention that they brought in the children and the children's spouses of this original cohort. There are 5,124 of them. And then in 2002, they brought in their grandchildren, which are also the the children of the second generation. There are 4,095 of them. I also want to mention that we do have two smaller multi-ethnic cohorts. Ah, Um, as well, because at the time of initial recruitment in 1948, Framingham was largely a town uh, consisting of people of Caucasian ancestry, and so the two smaller multi-ethnic Omni-Gen 1 and Gen 2 cohorts represent a more ethnically diverse group. Rhoda, what year was that, that that began? Uh, For the Omni-Gen 1, they started in 1994, and for the Omni-Gen 2, they started in 2002 actually at the same time as the Gen 3 cohort. I see, I see. And so, and I, I, one thing I want to say in passing, it's just not related to the particulars you're talking about now, but it always impressed me that the Framingham study is a source of civic pride in that town in Massachusetts. So that it's a kind of way of saying folks that participating in, in health research has some special kinds of benefits, and they they keep reaping it there. So I I just want to mention that in case we ever get a chance to interview more people on clinical trials that we're doing right here, and anybody listening, wherever you are, where the clinical trials are being done over there. So, and with respect to the heart-brain link, you learn that you're talk. We're going to talk about how 
Alzheimer's and brain aging, it's a, it's a life course disease. And you were able to, you had some different opportunities because you're looking over several different cohorts and you could get involved in earlier. So we'll, we'll talk about that. Your work, it's guided by the idea of the variability, not the homogeneity of pathology. And so that gives us a more realistic way of diagnosing, maybe, of get, we'll say maybe preventing, we'll get to that, but diagnosing, identifying, and treating. And so you can talk about, uh, there's a very specific thing in your publication about semantic versus executive types of impaired cognition. Yeah, I think that what we have to realize, and I think that, you know, you're, anybody who's ever had uh, different cognitive moments, you know, you just have periods of time where you feel cognitively more sharp than not, um, and there's lots of different factors that go into that. And it turns out that when we're testing people with these different cognitive tests, we see that all the time. So when I started testing at Framingham, what I was really struck by is, you know, at that time, the idea of cognitive testing was actually not as well accepted as it is today. And so when the participants first started coming in, the one thing I noticed is a lot of them were really nervous and anxious. And so I began to worry about the fact that as they were performing on these cognitive tests, were they really representing their true cognitive capabilities. So if you get someone who's in a more relaxed mood and more confident, you know, et cetera, you feel like you're getting a better snapshot of what their cognition really looks like. But if you get someone who's really anxious or they start to make mistakes, that's the other problem. You know, neuropsychological tests are, you know, we think of the word test. And so we think like, oh, if we're taking a test, we have to get everything right. Well, cognitive tests aren't really set up that way. They're really set up to sort of figure out what's the range of cognitive behaviors and capabilities. And so often these tests are set up so it's impossible to get them all right, all the answers right for a test. But we're so programmed with the idea that we really should get everything right. So as you're taking the test, what I would notice some of our participants, even if they started out calmly, as they started to realize that they were, you know, making mistakes or thinking that they were making mistakes, that would make them anxious. And so what you end up seeing over a course of hundreds of participants is a lot of variability in performance, even though the vast majority of them, I would say, are still cognitively normal. Okay. And so that's that would be a, sort of the executive type of impairment that you'd see versus the semantic. I hope I've got it right now. The, no, that's the semantic part that you're seeing. And the executive type of impaired cognition is more of the, the sort of mastery that begins to slip as brain aging is more observable. Yeah, or other factors come in, right? So emotional factors, you could be on medication use, et cetera. So these are all things that really could affect your cognition, even though your cognition itself is really relatively intact, as you say. You know, sort of this idea of the semantic is that that's their longstanding, you know, very well uh, established, um, you know, things like memory, et cetera, or automated processes that you're very well used to. But there are lots of things that we do cognitively that can be affected as we're engaging in that. So then you, in your publication, How Technology is Reshaping Cognitive Assessment, you break down all the technology involved in dealing with preventing, 
diagnosing, treating, monitoring, and assessing, and you call it the current rage, is the lifestyle risk factors as interventional strategy for reducing Alzheimer's risk. And it's, it's how long has that idea been an accepted thinking in the brain aging study? So it turns out that actually this concept that there are modifiable life risk factors, lifestyle risk factors that could affect your brain health has actually been something uh, that's been done for decades. Uh, Christine Yaffe actually at uh, UC SF, she's been, you know, at San Francisco, she's been engaging in this research for really, I mean, I don't actually have a, a memory when she hasn't been engaged okay. in this research because okay. it's been that long standing. I think what's happened, though, is that in the absence of pharmacologic, you know, effective pharmacologic solutions for the treatment of AD, Correct. we've started to look for what are the alternative strategies. And it's because of the work of places like Framingham, for instance, that it's been able to show that lifestyle risk factors uh, are an effective interventional strategy for reducing risk of heart disease and stroke. And because we're seeing links between those same risk factors with related the brain, it's brought on sort of this understanding that actually this might be a vehicle in which we could actually do something, you know, that's in our control to reduce our risk for AD. So Mia Chiapelto, um, who's in Europe, she started the FINGER study which was a Finnish-based interventional, lifestyle interventional study. She ran it for two years, so it's a clinical trial study, right, okay. where they intervene with all sorts of different lifestyle risk factors. And she was able to document that those people who had the lifestyle interventions, um, you know, in a positive way, obviously, they showed 25% better cognitive performance compared to those who don't. And so what's happened is, is that there are finger studies now popping up all across the world, and then within the U.S., the Alzheimer's Association has funded their version of this finger study, which is the pointer study, and that's run by Laura Baker out of Wake Forest uh, University, and that's also a two-year clinical trial study looking to see whether the, modifying these lifestyle risk factors will, in fact, lead to reduction in your Alzheimer's disease risk. And along with lifestyle risk factors, what you've been able to look at this very long longitudinal study is that brain aging is now, it's happening not in the span of 10 years, but you can see a pre-sort of clinical evidence maybe up more than 20 years before that mild cognitive impairment may be showing. So it's, you're getting to look very early and look at very variably how this aging is starting to present itself. Do you want to talk a little bit about the, you know, how early, talk to people that are listening that are thinking, well, that's, that's a project I'll be thinking about 40 years from now. How do, you, how do you get people in your presentations, how do you compel them to understand it's now is your maintenance hour? Sure. So I think that that's where the um, Framingham Heart Study has been pretty critical yes. in um, providing this kind of data as well as some other studies, but certainly Framingham, because as I mentioned, we have three generations of cohorts. Our youngest cohort right now is average age 50. You know, they started much younger, and we've been studying uh, their uh, cognitive performance and looking at their brain structure across now the entire adult lifespan. You know, early on in my career, people used to ask me, what's the message? What's the lesson learned out of Framingham? Yeah. And 
I used to always say midlife health matters, and that's because what we were able to do is we were measuring all these cardiovascular risk factors when people were in their 30s, 40s, and 50s and looking to see what was their impact on their brain, you know, years later. And so I started out saying, so it turns out that if you have high cardiovascular risk, when you're in your middle adult years, it turns out that that increases your risk for cognitive decline later on. But now I've been changing that because now as we moved our research to include the Generation 3 cohort, which is even younger, it becomes sort of the same message that we get for heart disease and stroke. It's really about maintaining your, your health, right, your physical health, your cardiovascular health, and that in turn is then helping to maintain your brain health. So that's really from the research standpoint. From the standpoint of someone who's well today or relatively well today, you know, why should I care? Why would it matter? Well, it turns out that many of these risk factors that are related to both heart health as well as brain health, you know, these are risk factors that are insidious in onset. Yes. So what happens is, is that the changes that happen over time are very gradual. So I always like to use the example of blood pressure. If you have normal blood pressure when you're younger, over time, your blood pressure starts to get higher. And what happens is is that usually we don't really pay attention to that until you hit some threshold. And that threshold is what we've defined as sort of hypertension or prehypertensive. And so, but if we wait, until you hit those higher levels before we intervene, that may be starting the process too late. And really what we should be doing is monitoring on an ongoing basis, see where your optimal level of health is, and trying to keep you at that. So that as you start to creep up, even a little bit, on a, you know, that's on a persistent basis, if we could actually intervene then, then we can maybe stop that whole trajectory of, you know, path toward disease altogether. And that's really sort of the idea that I think that technology can bring in and allow us to do that monitoring. And so I wish that we would stop thinking about, you know, the idea of that we're just trying to focus on disease and preventing disease, I actually would like us to think about how do we just optimize our health and do it across our entire lifespan. For those of you who've just tuned in, my guest is Dr. Rhoda O, Professor of Anatomy and Neurobiology and the Department of Neurology at the Boston University School of Medicine and on the Framingham Heart Study. And we're talking about the findings that Earlier is the time to consider our lifestyle, our life maintenance. And it's sort of like if we could understand that those, if we were plotting our blood pressure at different levels, we could, we could just assume it's only going to go up and you need to redirect earlier than later how those plots continue to increase over time with our health. Yeah, I think that that's really the idea. Let's not presume that just you know, I'd like people to actually stop thinking also about aging as something that we just do later in life. Aging is actually something we do from conception to death. And okay. really, it would be, I think, it's a little bit of a mental shift, but really to think about aging as a developmental process across the entire lifespan. 
And then maybe the presumption that we have to necessarily decline or, you know, would see decline um, over time and just accept that. I'm not sure that we have to. Um, I'm thinking that, again, if the idea is to take sort of wherever our health is and then always just try to optimize that, then maybe we will change that trajectory that currently we accept that puts us on this pathway toward disease. So you have come up with, um, or you, you talk about the Boston process approach that is based on a conceptualization of cognition as being comprised of multiple processes that can't be captured only in one test. So there, you've published your work about how it's changed from a neurologist doing the testing to a neuropsychologist testing and getting much more interesting, nuanced, useful information. Can you talk about that vital transition in the study? Sure. So the Boston process approach is a way of thinking about how to assess cognitive behaviors while you're giving a neuropsychological test. So this was championed by Edith Kaplan at the Boston VA Medical Center uh, years ago. And what Edith did was she really thought that it was important to pay attention to how you got to your response and not just focus on the final response. So one of her really um, amusing anecdotes, she would talk about this one test. It's called a block design test. And what you do is you move different blocks around to create, you know, you put it together to create a design that's in front of you. And what she would say is that if you did this test and you misplaced one of the blocks, you would get, you know, that would be considered incorrect for that test item. Now, if a different participant tried to eat the blocks, they would get the same score. And so her point was is that not all incorrect responses have the same value. Yes. And we really need to pay attention. So I always like to say not all zeros are equally zero. And there are some zero responses that are really close to the correct response. And then there are some zero responses that are much further away. And we really have to pay attention to those differences in the performance, and so it's that pathway to the response that's equally as informative as the final response itself. And that's really the basis for the Boston process approach. And that really allows us to much more fully capture what is the variability in performance across a lot of different domains, even within a test, never mind across multiple tests. And that difference also allows for an earlier appreciation of where that participant, where that patient, if we're talking not in the trial, but in in a medical practice, it gives a better understanding earlier of what to do. Yeah, actually, I noticed this very early on um, when I first started at Framingham. So I started in Framingham in 1990, and we would do these dementia diagnosis meetings, which would include a neurology exam and a neuropsychology exam. And back in those days, we used to very conservatively decide that we would diagnose someone as having Alzheimer's disease if the neurologist felt that the person was demented and at a severity level of moderate uh, dementia. And that's because back then it was actually much more difficult to diagnose Alzheimer's disease accurately. We just didn't have the experience that we do today. 
But what I noticed early on is that well before when the neurologist would say that someone was demented and, you know, meet the clinical criteria of dementia and Alzheimer's disease, we were already seeing it in the neuropsychological exams. And so that really sort of, and that's because we do a lot more extensive testing, but it's also because we really adopted this Boston process approach. So we weren't interested in just simply what was their final score, and we felt that we could differentiate between those that seemed to be truly on the pathway of neurodegeneration versus those who were just having some variability in their performance but didn't really reflect cognitive impairment. So with this, I'd like to sort of pivot. We're talking about the this variability and all, and it, I think there's an equity issue that... With Mm. earlier intervention, I think you can get at a broader population. You're not relegating people to more elaborate, expensive, less accessible procedures. So you're you're going to be able to reach more people. I I don't know if administering the Boston process approach, testing and others, if that's an expense beyond the reach of any household budget. But but it seems that earlier means a broader public is going to be benefiting from this these findings. Yeah, so that touches on a problem that we've long had um, in research in general, which is that we do not test a representative, a truly representative sample of the U.S. population. Uh, we have a very ethnically diverse population, and pro- one of the central problems of uh, neuropsychological tests particularly in the early days, is that they were really designed for people who are native speakers of English Mm. and who have higher levels of education. And so they are necessarily biased in many different ways. Also, the way in which we administer them, you know, you have to come into a clinic. That assumes then you're within an urban area, so that's very much more difficult for rural uh, participants. You have to get in, so you have to have transportation, you know, capabilities. You have to be able to take the time off to come in and do this testing. So you can kind of see there's all these factors that actually make it difficult to reach broad segments of the population. And that's where I think technology can also really help to solve some of these problems. I think that there are ways in which to measure cognitive behaviors that are different from the traditional neuropsychological test, but that would be much more ethnically and racially agnostic and neutral and allow us to assess across broad spectrums of the population and do so in a way without requiring them um, to meet, you know, sort of these criteria of coming in and being and having certain levels of education and English capabilities and et cetera. And I see from the UCI mind when they're looking for more clinical research coordinating staff and all that, that they're expanding the language capacity for those staff. So it's it's a different day, certainly from back in the early 90s. And uh, so, well, the real interesting pivot that I, from my understanding in your talk, was about how patients can begin taking possession of the data about them. Talk about what you envision is a direction we're heading in decentralizing the data collection and being able to to keep one's own data and how it's used. Yeah, I think, well, first of all, I'd like to just sort of mention that I like to sort of get away from the concept of a patient 
and try to focus in on the, you know, concept of a person. Yes. Um, and that really is sort of aligned with this idea that we really want to optimize your health rather than think of you just in terms of disease and treatment. So that's sort of just one thing. Excellent. And I think Point that, well taken. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I just, you know, I, I think that we're very locked into the medical model and the idea, you know, we're very medically oriented, right? And so we always right. think about that when we talk about health, we're really talking about a, a patient to doctor relationship. And what I think technology allows us to do is really put the power of someone's health in their own hands. And that really gets then into this idea that it's really the person's information and they should own it and they should decide on how it should be used. If we're getting this information uh, well before they meet the criteria of patient, that sort of changes then the discussion. And I really like to think about sort of a more citizen science approach. I think the other thing that we need to be very, very mindful of is that as we move into these technological capabilities, we have to be very concerned about people's privacy and confidentiality. And I think the best way to ensure that is to give the control of the data back to the people. You know, it really should be them deciding what of their data they want to be sharing either, you know, to their family members, to, uh, to their physicians, as well as to researchers. So that's really where I think that we need a shift where we stop thinking about, at least in the research world, that somehow it's the researchers that collect this data and that we, quote, unquote, own the data. Right. I don't think we own data at all. The only people who own data are the people who give their data. And so everybody owns their own data, and I think we need to find different ways in which people can choose to share their data and do it in a way that protects their confidentiality, privacy, and is only used in ways that they feel comfortable. And the point, one of the many points of this would be that it would avail the person an earlier indication of what's going on for the capacity, ability to respond earlier. However, when when you were talking about the different sorts of uh, indications of the brain aging process uh, being more known earlier, how does this, I mean, it seems like there's all cultures of persons, because I'm not going to use the word patient anymore, Rhoda, thanks for that. <laughs> thanks for cleaning up that act of mine. But that there's so many cultures and mindsets and subcultures of what they're going to do with that data. Do, do they, uh, I mean, it's theirs to, to decide to have and interpret, or they, you know, some of them may not want ever to see that data. There, there's a huge denial, I'm sure you've seen over your many decades of study, that uh, how do you deal with that variation of acceptance of that data? Yeah, I think that that's on us, actually, in the research okay. community to make people feel safe about their data. I think that, obviously, there's been a history, both within the U.S. and outside of the U.S., where there's been real misuse, uh, not just of data, but, you know, in terms of how we've collected the data and not appropriately informing people. So I understand where culturally there can be some suspicion, um, and I think it's up to us to create, you know, um, trust 
And the way to, to develop trust, I think, is to give the control back to them. It shouldn't be, be us dictating what kinds of data uh, will be collected that they may not be com- comfortable with or if we collect it, that they keep the ones that they're uncomfortable with to themselves and share only what they uh, want. So I think that you are talking about trying to uh, develop a mind shift for underrepresented populations that typically have not participated in this kind of work uh, before. But I think that I don't think there's a magic solution. Mm. I think it's just that we have to have a transparent one. And if you don't have trust and transparency, you're never going to get to the level of representative that we really need to actually accomplish from a research perspective. So that transparency is the sort of the motto, the guiding principle, as we're, we're looking at the New York Times recently published a, a piece about the Apple medical model, and that, that, that could sort of like maybe push back a little bit on what you're trying to do in your sort of earnest, you know, public, person-centered kinds of, of goals. Does that confound things, or does it give us a mo- more of a chance to expect transparency, demand it in every different domain of data collection? Yeah, I think that, you know, we're going to have to go through a transition between sort of, you know, what I call this, you know, completely decentralized, you know, person-centric citizen science approach versus what we've done traditionally in the past. And I think that, you know, one of the things that we also want to be careful is that as we move forward, we do this, again, you know, informed consent is really, really important. And we need to make sure that when we do any of the work, whether in the traditional way or in this new way, uh, that we are doing it so that people are fully informed to what they're consenting to. So there are people who are very comfortable with the idea of not um, having complete control and say over their data because they, you know, and I would say our Framingham participants are very much like this. Yes. They're trying to do this for the sake of science, and they actually are very comfortable with the idea of having a lot of their data broadly used. I mean, Framingham data is not is used worldwide. Right, for years. Right. right? So, but I think that, again, we're trying to talk about populations that have not had the opportunity uh, to participate and to feel comfortable about how their data is collected and used. I think that they should be part of that dialogue. I think that we should be designing studies in a way that makes them feel comfortable so that they're not just culturally and um, ethnically sensitive, but they're also designed in a way so that they're done in a way that, that fits sort of um, the shifts that need to happen um, in order to gain that kind of trust. And the yield being that we have a healthier public with a more sort of economically sustainable, I mean, meaning access to, to better health care, that, that that's all those things can get us there. Yeah, we want to make sure that we're developing treatments that are really, you know, when we talk about personalized medicine, that's about getting the right treatment to the right person at the right time. And what I would say is our goal is really precision brain health, which is really about the right solution for the right person at the right time. And if we don't engage, you know, the 
the comprehensiveness and the re- of, of our population, we're not going to achieve the goals of either precision medicine or precision health. Well, Rhoda, oh, thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, sure. No, thank you so much for having me. That was lovely. My guest was Rhoda O, Professor of Anatomy and Neurobiology at the Department of Neurology at Boston University School of Medicine and on the Framingham study. We'll be right back with my next guest, Norma Aguilar, Consul of Mexico. Don't go away. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My next guest is Norma Aguilar, Consul of Mexico, and she is in charge of community, educational, and cultural affairs at the Consulate of Mexico in Orange County, the office in Santa Ana. We'll talk about that with some events that are happening right now. She's served in the Mexico's Ministry of Foreign Affairs at various postings, including, I want to make sure I got London, New Orleans. New Orleans was first. New Orleans was first, and also in, was it Houston? Among other places. And she completed her degree in international relations at Universidad Nacional Atomna de Mexico at Tulane University and at information technology at City University in London. She joins me in studio. I'm so glad to have her. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Norma Aguilar. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure for me to be here uh, this morning with you and your public, and it's an honor for me. Oh, well, no, it's my honor. Please, I'm going to make that be the last word. Well, let's, let's just begin just with the general charge of the consulate in Santa Ana, because I uh, just fresh last night, I'm finding people who have no idea that you're there. And it's really important that we know we've got you on the map there. So what generally is it that your charter is there at the consulate? At the consulate, I am in charge of community, educational, and cultural affairs, which means that with all the community affairs, we try to gather the community here in, in uh, of Mexico in Santa Ana together so that we can work and we can preserve the culture and the traditions. And most important, that they feel that the Mexican government is concerned about their their well-being has their back yes that's (laughs) that's correct that uh, that we we can support them with cultural educational programs uh with health programs that we have with partners here in 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 orange county as well as financial education so we have an array of uh, services for the community for the mexican community here in orange county so Right now, I mean, you're in your capacity, you have a special cultural aspect, and there is, right now, there is, well, I'm going to back up a little bit, because we've already had the benefit of the Mexican Independence Day in September. Correct. And that was an amazing venue at the Orange County Museum of Arts temporary location, but it's, they're making it a real, they're there. So there was that going on, that was lively, everybody turning out there, and there's, you had, you honored Silvia Mendez, the OT... Otley Award. Award ceremony. Yes. So that was a, a, a wonderful thing, recognizing her that's opening the pathways to enhancing the future generations of Mexico in dentro, fuera, both sides of the both border. Both sides of the border, yes. So 
then we have an opportunity for people to know what's going on right now. It started last week. Correct. And it's going to continue until the 18th of December. So at Casa Morelos in Santa Ana, tell us what's happening, please, Norma. Well, of course. Well, in Mexico, we are very proud of our heritage, and we want to invite everybody to come um, uh, to this special uh, festival of uh, handcrafts from Mexico, from different regions of Mexico. We have uh, artisans from Chiapas, Guerrero, Hidalgo, Jalisco, Morelos, Puebla, Oaxaca, Michoacán, the state of Mexico, and Yucatan. That's almost all of them. Well, almost. Well, a third of them. And oh, we're very wow. proud of this because uh, we want to show that we have the wonderful work of artisans in Mexico. And we want to promote their handcrafts so that they can come, people can come and buy them and then serve as a present. But this is also for the social purpose. Yes, So of that course. we can help the, the Mexican community in Mexico so that they can still produce their, their, their uh, handicrafts and we show them to the world. So then that's what the, the hours and times and places give us all the particulars. Of course. This is in Casa Morelos. Casa Morelos is just across the street from the consulate in the same parking area. So you, people can come and, and come to the consulate, see an exhibition, and also come to, the, to Casa Morelos and it's going to be from, well, uh, we have already had the grand opening uh, on December 4th to the 18th from 8 in the morning to 2.30. And Casa Morelos, the address is 2112 East 4th Street, Suite 112 uh, in Santa Ana. Very, very central to yes. where the Calle Cuatro, Calle Cuatro. Is, Cuatro is located. Pardon me on that. So you want both, the there's commerce, there's social there are other goals. And will, is the consulate, is, is it open? Some people might be able to just come in and check and see what's going on inside of there. Of course. We, they can come to our gallery. We have a uh, small exhibition of what they can buy across the street. And it is important that people know that we have this variety of uh, uh, handicrafts so that people know that uh, they can come and buy perhaps for presents because they're unusual and they are yes. very, very beautiful things. And they are knitted uh, items as well as uh, some other very elaborated, uh, beautiful ceramic, ceramic. And we Textile. have textiles, and uh, tapestries. Sounds, any CDs? Not this time. Not this time? Not this time. Not this time. Okay. Okay. Uh, hopefully next year we'll do it. Okay, no, because we're, we're going to go out with some music yes. that always captures me, and so I, I wasn't sure of that. And uh, perhaps anything printed, printed art or printed we uh, have literature? Pr we have printed work, and also we have beautiful photography from a, a photographer from Guerrero. And they are in the gallery of the consulate, so they, if people want to acquire them or to buy, to buy them, they can come to the consulate as well. For those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader on Radio KUCI. My guest is Norma Aguiar, Consul of Community Educational and Cultural Affairs in the Consulate of Mexico at the Santa Ana office. And that is for Orange County. And it, it does it include, uh, you're pulling from anybody in Southern California. You anybody who wants to come is very welcome. We represent uh, Orange County. We have... 10 consulates in California, 
but okay. this is just one for Orange County, and this is because of the importance of the Mexican community here in Orange County. Santana, I don't know if you know, but Santana is the most Mexican city, uh, proportionally speaking, of Mexico, outside of Mexico. Outside, everywhere. Because eight of ten people are from Mexico in Santana. That so is they, really remarkable. Yes. So one can see that, I think, probably n the best of any time, I think, on Sundays. That seems to be like it's because people are on their day off. Uh, t time off and it's and it's like the whole family unit and that kind of it's when you can really really see that in yes. its fullest and also let me invite you there is a we have partnered with 30 museums around orange county on a program called go Passe, which is gr great opportunities to visit these places and as you mentioned sundays at the bowers museum we have a tamayo exhibition in, in at the oh, Bowers wow. Museum, on for residents of Santana, it is free. Yes. So all the families can come. So it's well. Yes. You've been there for many. I've been there. It's been a while, but it's well attended. It's the community Appreciates, makes that opportunity. Yes. Oh, excellent, excellent. Well, and uh, you're tomorrow. You're going to roll out uh, from Mazatlan's tourist board. You're going to have an event. That's for that's not open to the public, but it's just to show folks that this consulate is busting with enterprise. And but and that there will be a cultural part to that that you're going to present in uh, that tomorrow too. You'll be there, no? Yes, Consul Cuevas, my my boss, Consul Mario Cuevas, okay. with, by the way, sends, sends you his best wishes. Oh, thank yes, you very yes. much. And uh, recuerdos, uh, back to him, please. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yes, yes. We we have a, a lot of uh, events this time of the year for the for the community. Yes. And what is very important uh, uh, for us is not only for the Mexican community we do events, but also for the whole community. We want the all the communities re uh, who reside in Orange County to know about the culture of Mexico. And that's why we participate in diff different events to promote our country. We're very proud of who we are and what we, our background, our heritage. And winning hearts through that cultural connection yes. is gonna get work that still needs to be done. Yes, uh, and we want to embrace all the cultures uh, from different parts of the world. And by the way, this program, the Go Passe program, yes. is also in Vietnamese. We have a version, yes. And we plan to do s with some other uh, languages. And this is program is also sponsored by Orange County Transportation Authority. Okay, and I've noticed that at the Bauer Museum, there have been with what the uh, Virgin of Guadalupe the Virgin of exhibit, Guadalupe. where yes. there was the Vietnamese contingent at the opening and there was a, and Chinese a, and Chinese, so it was it's a it's a very persistent, a very constant commitment that the consulate of Mexico has made to to bring on who's present in Orange County. That's yes. very strategic. That's very wonderful. So any, um, I mean, there's some informal La Posadas that are uh, taking place around Santa Ana, around Orange County. And is there any is there any part you're sort of contributing toward or connecting with it at all? We have already had uh, last, uh, this past Sunday. That was Sunday. Yes, okay. Sunday, Sunday, that was. Couldn't be in two places at one time. Yes, yes. <laughs> so sorry. Be but yes, it, it was at the Heritage Museum with Mini Ondas, a magazine. And we have a beautiful event with Estudiantina and also with all the people gathered together to, to do a posada. A posada in Mexico is celebrated 
from uh, the 16th of December to the 24th. And that's for uh, people to recreate what happened in the uh, Christian uh, religion, in the Catholic. I would like to submit that La Posada is happening every single day. Correct. Someone comes to our border. Somebody comes to to get some service that is needed. Somebody comes, and there needs to be room in the inn for that person because Mm -hmm. of the need they have. Yes. So I see La Posada as like the most remarkably universal theme for all of us, and I'm, I'm. Was it well attended on Sunday? That you're, maybe I'm hoping maybe some new uh, recruits were there to to yes. understand what that pageant is yes. all about. Uh, we had a lot of public, uh, and also the participation of the clubs from uh, that the the groups that we have formed from the community from Chiapas, Puebla, oh. Oaxaca. Guerrero, the state of Mexico, Mexico City. They were representing selling food and tamales and uh, special chocolate drinks. Oh, yes. Yes, so it was well attended. And we had a little bit of a problem with the weather but because oh, it, that's was right. raining, it was raining, but yeah. it, was, it was beautiful. It was such a beautiful event. Well, I wish we had more time. Just I'm going to put the consulate website, a link on the podcast summary so people can continue to follow events that are coming up in the future. And I'm going to really enjoy checking in tomorrow and with other events that you're putting on all throughout Orange County. You've, you've been amazingly opportunistic with bringing that to our attention. So Norma Aguiar, I want to thank you so much for being on Ask a Leader today. Thank you so much. That was my show. I'm going to quickly uh, announce that the it's the American Geophysical Union. They are meeting at, uh, they're in San Francisco right now meeting. And they get a, a lot done in terms of climate change. The Community Choice Energy will make their case to the Irvine City Council today at 1 o'clock, a special study session. So be sure to turn out and witness what's going on. You may have something to say about what we all can be, what all the municipalities can be doing with the community choice energy programs underway in, throughout Southern California, around the whole state. Then the Aquarium of the Pacific, they're going to have winter camp, holiday camp for the kiddies over there in Long Beach. You can check that out. And as you continue to your holiday celebrations, there's no better way than to rein in the single-use waste or any waste for that matter. So opportunities are infinite and will give you a fine feeling, I guarantee you. And Greenpeace is descending upon Target to make that point. That's my wrap. Next week, I'm going to walk the walk after talking the talk about independent book dealers. Ivy bookstore owner, Emma Snyder, thrives in the shadow of Amazon in the one of its major hubs. And my second guest will be Attic Community Theater owner and co-founder James Huffman with all his best-kept secrets for Productions in Tantana. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. <laughs>